So I'm wondering if you had a chance to listen to my interview just a couple of episodes back with Zach first. Zach, the executive director of the Drucker Foundation, and in our conversation, we talked about how in a time of turbulence, organizations and institutions, big and small, can be candles in the darkness. And how that means being able to lead, to be a manager, when I was talking with Zach, is to be a bulwark, a barrier against tyranny. I mean, that's all good in theory. But how do you start a movement in practice? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Thibaut Manikin is a commercial real estate entrepreneur, so not my usual type of guest, but he's a real estate guy with a twist, and it's been a winding road to get from where he started to where he is now, even though in some ways he's come back home. So let's start with Thibaut's roots. He was born to a French immigrant and her American husband. He grew up in Baltimore City with three younger sisters. And quite frankly, it was a bit of an idyllic life growing up. And Thibaut could easily have disappeared into the ranks of the upper middle class and frankly, the American dream. But there were two powerful moments when he was younger that opened up a different path for Thibaut. One dark, one light. The first is when his parents allowed him to stay up late and watch a movie with him. Now, that had been something like, I don't know, The Incredibles. Well, that would have been fun. But no, the movie wasn't The Incredibles. It was Mississippi Burning. It was really heavy for a 10-year-old boy. And there's this scene about halfway through where a mob of the Ku Klux Klan is gathered outside of a black church. And they're kind of waiting, hiding behind trees. And the black parishioners come out after the service. And the mob attacks them and beats them and Towards the end of that scene, there's this young boy who appears to be my age, and he's kneeling on the ground, just praying for this all to end. And a Ku Klux Klan comes and kicks him as hard as he can in the head. And at 10 years old, like that's all I could take. I sprint out of the room. I run up to my bedroom and I bury my head in my pillow, sobbing uncontrollably. And I remember like my mom comes in and she sits on the end of the bed and she doesn't say anything. She puts her hand on my back. She just kind of holds space. And Michael, it was the first time I remember asking myself, why are we so divided as human beings? How can I have just witnessed this scene from this movie, which is based on a true story, and how is this possible? That's the dark moment. But Thibaut's parents had another powerful moment in store for him. This one's the light moment. A few months later after the movie, they loaded everyone into the family station wagon and they went for a drive. We pull over to the side of the road and there are hundreds of cars parked there and thousands of people on the road. And they're all kind of like linked hands. And my dad explains that we're there to participate in something called Hands Across America, which was an attempt to get Americans to link hands from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. Um, and so we join hands with literally millions of people from as far as I could see the right and left is this human chain. And I remember asking myself in that moment, what is this powerful force that has brought so many people together for one specific cause at one moment in time. And I began to ask myself a second question, which is how are the, what are the creative ways that we can begin to bridge the divides that exist? So Michael, at like 10 years old, I had these two questions. Why are we so divided? And what are the creative ways that we can bridge those divides? Now I imagine, I mean, I'm certain actually, that all of us bump into questions like this over the course of our lives, especially when we're young. 
when we start to notice the injustices of the world. But you know, as we get older, most of us find a way to live with the discomfort, just to accept the way things are, to turn a blind eye. So I wanted to know what kept those powerful moments, these questions that were raised, what kept these alive for Thibaut? And how did they launch him on his unexpected journey? The questions never went away, right? They started yeah. burning in my heart at 10 years old and they only intensified. You know, as I said, I grew up in Baltimore City and I continued to see real examples of that divide. And I, you know, grew up in a kind of like upper middle class bubble and I was never comfortable in that bubble because I knew yeah. I had seen the other side of it, mm. right? And I was always drawn to it, this incredible compassion ar around it and had always tried to wrap my head around it and my heart around it. So, you know, the older I got, the more I saw real world examples of why those questions were really important. So I, right. I finally, I kind of graduate from college and we have two choices in life. We can sit on the sideline and hope that someone else does the heavy lifting. Yeah. Um, or we can understand that we have a real role and purpose in this world. And I had begun to understand my purpose, which was the pursuit of those answers to those two questions. So I set off and with two friends, we started an international nonprofit called Peace Players. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we would go to war-torn countries and we would use sports, in our case, basketball, to bridge divides, develop yeah. leaders, and help to change perceptions. Yeah. So we raised a bunch of money, felt like $8,000, which felt like a million dollars at like 22 years old. And it was enough to get on a plane to South Africa right after the fall mm. of apartheid. And we started dribbling basketballs in black townships and black rural areas and uh, white suburbs. And slowly but surely, this concept started to pick up. The kids were coming out of the woodworks to participate. Coaches were really falling in love with it. And the program began to grow. I guess about, I don't know, three or six months into it, we were starting to run out of money. We we're doing the best we could to raise it. We get a call from Nelson Mandela's foundation. Right. And the phone call. I've heard from, of him. <laughs> <laughs> and the lady on the other line says, that President Mandela is a huge believer in the power of sports to unite, and he loves your program, and he wants to become your largest sponsor. Wow. So we go from no credibility to hustling as hard as we can to Nelson Mandela's name and money behind us. And, you know, the floodgates kind of open. We were invited to replicate the model all over the world in the Middle East with Israeli and Palestinians, mm. uh, Northern Ireland, Protestant Catholics, Cyprus, Yemen. You know, today the program's in over 20 countries, has worked with hundreds of thousands of kids. Yeah. But from that very young age all the way through into my 20s, I began to fulfill that desire to understand those two questions and to help to answer them, which yeah. is an impossible, there are two, two impossible questions to answer, but at least I felt like I was a, a part of trying to, to figure it out. Tiba, I, I was speaking to somebody else on the podcast just the other day, and he, he runs an organization called the, the Barn Raisers, something. And um, we had a very interesting conversation about when you feel the world is broken, where do you put your attention? And, um, you know, and we talked about the kind of the classic white savior <laughs> phenomenon. It's just like, okay, you got you people over there are broken. Let me come in, fix it and, and save you from yourselves. I, I'm wondering how you sit with that. Yeah. I've asked myself that a lot. And especially as I was writing the book that, that I just released, it was, uh, you know, it, was, it could have been a prominent through line. And I think the difference is, right, and the way that we've approached or, or that I've approached the opportunity for this work is to understand that it, it isn't my work, 
and it mm-hmm. isn't my idea. You know, yeah. I, I believe that in order to grow an idea, we have to understand that it doesn't belong to us, that it's always existed. Right. It's right. been sitting on the tip of the universe's tongue, <laughs> waiting to be brought to life. Oh, I love that. Yeah. We will play some small role in bringing it to life, but it mm. will only succeed if tens or hundreds or thousands or millions of people claim ownership of the idea yeah. and feel the same sense of pride of ownership and authorship in what's getting created. So when we went to South Africa for the first time as two white men, we were really clear that this wasn't our idea of using sports to unite, that it always had existed, that we had no cultural ability to understand the divisions that existed in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. I knew how to dribble a basketball. <laughs> um, and to a certain extent, at 22 years old, that was about it. Right? Right, right. So our jobs was to be quietly behind the scenes, yes. helping the people from South Africa pick up the game of basketball and use it and mold it in a way mm. that they thought would change the fabric of it. So, you know, my role in all of the programs and all of the ideas that we've helped to grow has been to be behind the scenes yeah. so that yeah. it isn't as the white savior coming in saying, hey, I've noticed by reading the news <laughs> that 10,000 miles away from my city of Baltimore, you guys don't like each other. Right, you right. know, and that you've got centuries of, of division and hatred that have been bubbling up, and yeah. I'm going to fix it. You know, my ability to come in, deeply listen, bring whatever expertise I have, but really be behind the scenes is, I think, the difference between the like white savior mentality, yeah, and me feeling like I'm, uh, I'm playing my part in search of my purpose. Yeah. So, I mean, over the years as you've been involved in different movements, how has your sense of leadership changed and evolved? It's changed a lot. Leadership's such a fascinating word. You know, you kind of think of the leader as the like thump in his chest and out in the front line and putting that point, point everybody in the directions and real clarity. You know, I've always yeah. been, been really self-conscious about that. Right. Because I never thought that I had the ability to truly lead. Yeah. You know, my approach has always been a lot more hands off, a lot more. I love you. I see you. I trust you. um, And I'm here to support. And I just never knew if that would work. That wasn't the stereotypical leadership role. And Mm. that was was just honestly like really self-conscious about that. I think my ability as a leader and what I've learned is that that approach actually works really well. But there are times where we have to be able to step up, where our face is required to be in the spotlight, mm-hmm. where our message is, needs to be in part of the interview or the newspaper yeah, story. Yeah. yeah. You know, for years, I had made sure that anytime anybody approached us to interview me or us about the work that we were doing, I would always pass the interview opportunity off to somebody else. Right. I never wanted to be in the spotlight. And what I've learned is that there are times, seldom and few. Yeah where your message is really important that the people that you are leading need to hear from you in a different way. And again, while rare, if you're growing these movements and these ideas in a really inclusive way, there are times you're going to have to step up and make a really hard decision. Um, and, uh, and I think that's been the, uh, it's been a a beautiful part of the journey is understanding where I've missed that mark on that (laughs) and understanding where, um, uh, where, where, how to correct it who planted the seed of a leadership style of you know i love you i see you i support you where where did that come from i think it came from my parents 
Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. I have two kids now, so I'm on the other I'm on the other <laughs> side of that. And you know, parenting is really hard. You know, they're well, well they'll tell I'm, you I'm child book. free, but I've I've heard yeah. that, and I admire <laughs> you for raising kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hard and 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 beautiful at the same time. But my parents never once told us what to do, who to be, mm. or how to live our lives. When we messed up, there was never like a sit down lecture of like this is how I am as a parent and a human. And this is how you should be. You should follow and you should you know, yeah. be everything that I tell you to be. They gave us really long leashes. They allowed us to, I fell out of so many trees. I, I was, I was in the, I was in the hospital so much that they would send me, the nurses would send me birthday cards until I was like 10 years old. Um, because my parents let me live life. Right. Right. Um, and they never lectured to us. And, um, and I made so many mistakes away along the way, Michael, mm. you know, to the point that as I've reflected back, I've gone back to them and say, why weren't you guys more present for me? Why didn't you yeah. tighten that leash? Why didn't you explain things to me? And what I realized is that way of leading, of telling mm. people how to be is the like immediate quick fix, Yeah, but it doesn't solve it for the long term because it isn't ingrained in your heart. It sticks in your head, but it isn't in your heart. Yeah. And this way of leading by example, my dad and my mom are incredible human beings. And what I've learned now as an adult is that just by watching them be who they were as they went through life, shaped who I became, shaped the leadership style that I had way more than anybody ever kind of lecturing to me. And it's a, it's a dance because now I have kids and the easiest thing to do is yell and scream. And what the hell? Why did you do that? And like, don't you know that's not how we are as humans? Yeah. And I always catch myself and say, hey, just just be. Um, Kimo, what book have you selected to read from? Yes, Michael, I selected the book The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. It is quite the book. You know, I was I was checking in on it. I've read it many years ago and it's like seventy thousand <laughs> ratings on Amazon, which is, you know, approximately 69,990 more ratings than my books have, which is like a lot. <laughs> you know, it's been a huge seller. Um, how did it come into your life? How did you discover it? The first time, and I've read this book 50 times. Mm. You know, anytime I set out on any kind of adventure, it's the book that I read. And you can read it in a couple hours. Yeah. The first time that I set out for my first adventure away from my family. My mom gave me the book. She didn't say anything. She just right. gave me the book. <laughs> and I think I must have read it on the plane ride and it changed my life. The book defined me, mm. you know, and uh, I can talk a little bit more about that in the future, but in part, part of the conversation, but it's a, it's an incredible story. Wondering how important this is to you. How did you select the two pages to read? So I actually went back and read it uh, two nights ago mm -hmm. um, to re remind myself because I have a copy here. I mean, look, look how old this copy is. Yeah, you, I see all, that. You can barely see it. It's got so many marks and <laughs> highlights in it. And I went back and reread it. And every time that I've read it, it has had a different meeting and a different point in my life. And what's interesting is the passage that I've chosen to read, which really talks about following the heart, mm. is something that I had forgotten over the yeah. course of the last couple of years through the pandemic. Yes. Um, and this was such a beautiful reminder. And I had began to remind myself of this. It's one of my uh, kind of commitments into 2022 is to always trust my heart. Mm. My heart is never wrong. 
And as much as my brain tries to get in the way of it, <laughs> right, um, right. When, I, when I really trust and follow my heart, I make all of the right decisions. That's wonderful. Well, I'm excited to hear the two pages. So Thibaut, over to you. They crossed the desert for another two days in silence. The alchemists had become much more cautious because they were approaching the area where the most violent battles were being waged. As they moved along, the boy tried to listen to his heart. It was not easy to do. In earlier times, his heart had always been ready to tell its story, but lately that wasn't true. There have been times when his heart spent hours telling of its sadness, and at other times it became so emotional over the desert sunrise that the boy had to hide his tears. His heart beat fast when it spoke to the boy of treasure, and more slowly when the boy stared entranced at the endless horizons of the desert. But his heart was never quiet, even when the boy and the alchemist had fallen into silence. Why do we have to listen to our hearts? The boy asked when they had made camp that day. Because wherever your heart is, that is where you'll find your treasure. But my heart is agitated, the boy said. It has dreams, it gets emotional, and it becomes passionate over a woman of the desert. It asks things of me, and it keeps me from sleeping many nights. And I'm thinking about her. Well, that's good. Your heart is alive. Keep, least, keep listening to what it has to say. During the next three days, the two travelers passed by a number of armed tribesmen and saw others on the horizon. The boy's heart began to speak of fear, told him stories it had heard from the soul of the world, stories of men who sought to find their treasures and never succeeded. Sometimes it frightened the boy with the idea that he might not find his treasure or that he might die there in the desert. At other times, it told the boy that it was satisfied and had found love and riches. My heart is a traitor, the boy said to the alchemist when they had paused to rest the horses. It doesn't want me to go on. That makes sense, the alchemist answered. Naturally, it's afraid that in pursuing your dream, you might lose everything you've won. Well then, why should I listen to my heart? Because you will never again be able to keep it quiet. Even if you pretend not to have heard it, what it tells you, it will always be there inside you, repeating to you what you're thinking about life and about the world. You mean I should listen even if it's treasonous? Treason is a blow that comes unexpectedly. If you know your heart well, it will never be able to do that to you because you'll know its dreams and wishes and you'll know how to deal with them. You will never be able to escape from your heart, so it's better to listen what it has to say. That way, you'll never have to fear an unanticipated blow. The boy continued to listen to his heart as they crossed the desert. He came to understand its dodges and tricks and to accept it as it was. He lost his fear and forgot about his need to go back to the oasis because one afternoon his heart told him that it was happy. Even though I complain sometimes, it said, it's because I'm the heart of a person and people's hearts are that way. People are afraid to pursue what the most important dreams because they feel they won't deserve them or that they will be unable to achieve them. We, their hearts become fearful just thinking of loved ones who go away forever or of moments that could have been good but weren't or of treasures that might have been found but were forever hidden in the sands because when these things happen, we suffer terribly. My heart is afraid that it will have to suffer, the boy told the alchemist one night as they looked up at the moon in the sky. Tell your heart that the fear of suffering is worse than suffering itself, and that no heart has ever suffered when it goes in search of its dreams. Thank you. Um, so how does that passage speak to your heart? Look, I think I have to tell a beautiful story, right? <laughs> and again, like the, the whole book, The Alchemist, is my life. Right. Like he starts in a little bit of his comfort zone as a shepherd in the hills of Andalusia, Spain, and gets the signs and meets the king that he must travel. Right. And he sets off for Africa, which is what I did. 
Yeah. You know, at, <laughs> right. at 21 years old, I left my bubble, my comfort zone, and I set off for Africa. And there's this like powerful, like, energy in the content on the continent of Africa, this constant drumbeat that grows within your heart every day you're there and it never leaves you. And, you know, the boy has this winding road and he's kind of always in search of his purpose yeah. and of his, the woman of his dreams, right. And of the treasure. And I've spent my whole life doing that, like mm. searching for the woman of the desert and the woman of the, that is going to like fulfill my every step. So Every time I would meet a, a woman or a girl or start dating, <laughs> I'd give them a copy of the book, The Alchemist. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing because none of them liked it. Mm -hmm. Because there's this, I don't know if you remember it, but uh, about three quarters of the way into the book, the boy meets the woman of the desert, the most beautiful, soul-fulfilling partner that he will ever find in his life. Um, but he leaves her. You know, right. He sets out because his destiny is to pursue his purpose and to find his treasure. And he gets all the right lessons along the way. And I met this amazing woman from Brazil and I gave her the book and Paulo Coelho's from Brazil. Yeah. I gave her a copy of the book to read. And the reason that the previous girlfriends didn't like the book is because they always thought that they were the woman of the desert in the book. And I was the boy. And right. My wife today, who <laughs> I met in Brazil, read the book and loved it because she saw herself as the boy. She was the dreamer, the one always in search of her purpose and her destiny, who would never settle for anything because it would only get in the way of that. And it was such a, the people that like the book and understand it, see yeah. themselves as the boy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the people who don't relate to the book, see themselves as one of the other characters and oftentimes the woman who's, who ends up waiting. So this book means so much to me on so many different I levels. I feel it. Yeah. yeah. I feel it. Yeah. Hey, Thibaut, there's a, there's an interesting tension for me about you selecting this book because it feels to me that the alchemist is very much a kind of uh, hero's journey style book you're like you're heading off and you're on a journey and you're discovering treasure looking for the external treasure finding the the, the lessons and the treasure within and your book is called larger than yourself and it feels to be about it's more than a hero's journey it's about a collectiveness and a movement and in fact, a need to get beyond just your own, your own desires. How do those two pieces of wisdom sit together for you? Michael, that is a beautiful and a hard question to answer. <laughs> so uh, well, well done. Um, look, it goes back to your original question of leadership, mm. right? And what I have always been afraid to face is any acknowledgement that I was part of creating greatness, mm. you know, even in the smallest capacity. Right. And so the book that I wrote, Larger Than Yourself, was really hard. And my, because I have never been really good at being vulnerable, mm -hmm. I've always been very reserved. I've never liked the spotlight or the limelight. And as I've told you, I've always been behind the scenes. Right. And my first pass at it, I gave it to my friend Wes Moore, who was wrote the um, who wrote has written some in, yeah. an introduction and some incredible bestsellers. And he was like, you know, T, uh, you missed the mark. This book will change the world, but not if. But nobody's going to want to read it if you can't be more vulnerable mm. and you can't explore a deeper level of understanding of where you yourself fit into this picture. Mm -hmm. And I think we've all got that like hero's journey within us. And I certainly do. And I've suppressed it for too long. 
Yeah. And look, I believe that everybody who participates in the growth of an idea has a heroic role to play in it. Mm -hmm. um, and while I acknowledge that, I have to also acknowledge my heroic work right. in all of this and all of this. And you're right. I hadn't linked the two together. Yeah. Um, probably some like psychology that I need to like <laughs> dig further into. Exactly. So thank you for like, waking up. Just lie down today. on this uh, couch that I have prepared for you and we should have some fun. Um, so how, how do you see ambition for yourself now? What are you ambitious for? I'm at this like incredible place in my life right now, right? I guess I'm 44, you know, maybe almost halfway through it. And mm -hmm. I have such clarity in why I wake up every morning, mm -hmm. right? Um, I completely trust the universe in the opportunities that it brings my way. And as we talked about, and maybe a reason that I chose this passage, I am in full surrender of my heart today. Mm -hmm. And I put that aside during the pandemic, as I had mentioned, because I was so afraid. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what the future was going to look like. And I, well, I wasn't afraid of dying, um, but I was, uh, you know, the, the work that I do today is in commercial real estate um, with a soul and a twist that we can get into. Um, but I had no idea would anybody ever go back to an office building that we were building? Would anybody right. live in an apartment again? Would everybody shop in a, a and visit a store other than sh shopping online ever again? So there was this the real fear that it set in, and I let that fear get in the way of my mm. ability to be creative. Right. And I let my head dictate the decisions as opposed to listening to my heart. And you know, now that I'm in kind of complete surrender of it, I, it's just it's just a beautiful space. Um, I'm able to kind of live in the present moment. I'm blessed with the opportunities that that that, that come my way. Um, and look, the the most ambitious thing and the greatest thing that I will ever be a part of is to be the husband to Lola, um, and to be the father of Finley and Durbin. Mm. You know, um, it doesn't matter how many buildings I build, how many nonprofits I start, how many ideas I I help to bring to life. It is about those two little boys and what impact they are going to have on the world. And for me, that's the, the greatest honor. And just like in work and business and life, I, I mess that one up almost every day too. Um, but it's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's been a beautiful journey. You know, that, that phrase, surrender to your heart, is, is a resonant one. I don't know how to do that though. <laughs> it's the sort of thing you read in, in the alchemist and the boy surrendered to his heart and he found the treasure. And I'm like, yeah, how, what does it take to, to surrender to your heart? How do you, how do you learn how to do that? Or how do you, maybe it's not even a learning thing. Maybe it's a, I, I, I think you do. I think, mm -hmm. you know, right. I think we all know anytime we're faced with the decision, which is almost every moment of every day, mm. Um, there are two things that come into play. One is our heart, right? Mm -hmm. And one is our head. And what I am increasingly aware of is that conversation. Right. And now I'm able to step outside of that and 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 hear what my head's saying and, and also hear the different perspective of my heart. The heart is the thing that's going to scare us, mm. right? It's the thing that's the decision that our heart wants to make is the one that's the most uncomfortable. It's the right. one that brings fear. And fear needs to be this incredible motivator, right? Like mm -hmm. when we start to be afraid of something, 
it means that it's uncomfortable and it's outside of our bubble and, and it's different than what we are used to. But fear is the only place and outside of that bubble and that comfort zone are the only places where true growth happens. Right. Um, and the heart always knows that and is going to always point us in that direction. And it's like, you know, so when my heart starts to get involved, I'll start sweating a little bit, you know, <laughs> not for like decisions of whether it should turn left or right, uh, um, but like true decisions that are going to affect a lot of people. Um, and when my head and my heart aren't aligned, I start sweating a little bit and I try to like follow my, I, I know that I like try to follow my, what my head's trying to get yeah. me to do. Um, but the, the ability to, uh, to, to really dive into that heart is going to be uncomfortable. And we need to be aware of that as the, as, as the conversations start. That feels more accessible to me on an individual level. Like who am I and how am I showing up in the world? It feels less accessible at a organizational level. So, you know, you're in the world of commercial real estate with a twist, as you said. Um, and I, I don't know anything about the world of commercial real estate, but I imagine it involves strategy <laughs> and strategy is often framed as like clear headed thinking. What am I going to say yes to? What are we going to say no to? Uh, I'm wondering how you work with head and heart in the context of being part of an organization. So look, right, you are referring to how the world has thought of real estate forever, strategy, mm -hmm. make money, plan, outthink. Yeah, right. Um, the problem with real estate is that it's the most powerful connected industry on the planet. But historically, it's done more to divide us and keep us apart than bring us together. I believe that we have responsibility to reimagine industries that the world is known as one way, flip them upside down, where mm -hmm. we're leading with our purpose over our profit, right? right? What if real estate and buildings could actually be used to empower communities, unite cities and help to launch really powerful ideas? It's the question that we ask ourselves every single day. The difference between the strategy that you're talking about um, and how to grow this heartfelt uh, mm -hmm. movement on a large collective level yeah. is removing the word strategy and replacing it with the word listening. Right. You know, like what if we could go into communities and instead of telling them what we're going to build for them, spend time l deeply listening to them, understanding what it is that they need buildings to do within their communities mm -hmm. so that they can live better lives. Yeah. Right. And I think it's the replacement of that. Look, their strategy is really important and yeah. we strategize all the time and we brainstorm and we, and we think, but at the heart of that strategy, the, um, the direction of it is informed by the people that we are going to serve. Yeah. And I think when you're able to do it in that way, um, you're able to kind of br bring everybody together through a higher purpose, right? It isn't about extracting as much money from a community or a project as possible. You know, it's how can this project change the narrative, change the dynamics? Uh, yeah. How did you decide to leave peace players behind? Because you said, you know, taken off in countries around the world, blessed by um, Nelson Mandela Foundation and championed by that. And um, it feels like that could have ended up being something that you do for the rest of your life in one form or another. But to move on to the next project, how did you know what to say no to and 
what was it about this new project that called you? So it was a really hard decision because at Peace Players, I had fulfilled every one of my wildest dreams. I traveled around the world, got paid to do it. I had a backpack and a surfboard that I went from like country to country, got to meet the most incredible people. And it was a really hard decision. But I, my life didn't feel real after five years of living out of a suitcase mm -hmm. and bouncing from community to community. Um, and I wanted to pick a city and settle down in it and put everything I had into that one city. Right. And I didn't know what city that was going to be. And I had unexpectedly ended up back in my hometown of Baltimore in 2006. And I remember I was like crashing out of my parents' house that night and had a beautiful dinner prepared by my mom. I went to go to sleep in the bed that I slept in thousands of times. And I'm kind of lying there incapable of closing my eyes mm -hmm. for something that was nagging me, something that was really deeply it's that French. Me. It's that French cooking. <laughs> It always keeps you awake. There's too much butter. <laughs> that might have been it. Um, but for me in the moment, there was something that was bothering me. Yeah. And so I tossed and turned the whole night. I couldn't figure out what it was. And eventually the sun comes up and I'm just, I know I'm not going to sleep. And I grab the keys to my car and I'm furious and frustrated and sad and emotionally drained. What am I doing back here? I get in my car and I drive and I go into West Baltimore. Um, and I pull over at the intersection of Pennsylvania and North Avenue. This is a part of Baltimore that I'd never been to before, that I had been made to believe my entire life that I wasn't welcome in and I wouldn't be safe in. Mm -hmm. um, this is the intersection where I pulled over that nine years later would be the epicenter of the Freddie Gray uprising in 2015 right. that the world watched our, our, our city um, uh, go through one of its many struggles. And I had this moment there, Michael, where I, I knew that I needed to get out of my car and I needed to explore this community. And I knew that there was something about this narrative that had been ingrained in me that wasn't true. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I understood from my experience of living in all these other really complicated cities around the world that until we can walk in the shoes of others, until we can deeply listen, we're not able to pass judgment, right? And we yeah. should never pass judgment. So I get out of my car and I start walking around and, and, and it was on that walk that I had the, the, these two realizations, right? That, 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 that one, our country of America is more divided than these other so-called war-torn countries. Yeah. We have an inability to have open and honest conversations with people who don't look and feel like us um, and that that was a ticking time bomb. Yeah. And we've certainly seen the results of the not being able to communicate here in this country. Mm. And then the second was the realization about real estate and I in that moment wanted to do something about it, you know, and it had been a huge believer in the importance of reimagining industries. We had reimagined basketball, not about how many shots you could make or how much money you could get playing professional ball, but how a round ball traveling between two kids could actually change perceptions and, and, and bridge divides. And I wanted to do that with real estate. I wanted to take a shot at it. And, uh, yeah. Um, it was that experience on that street that day that made me realize how much I had missed my whole life. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up less than three miles from that spot, never had never been there and had never taken the time to listen. Yeah. And I wanted to do something about that. I mean, you know, we're talking in 2022, it, America doesn't feel like it's become more united <laughs> since you started doing this work. And, and, you know, in Canada, we look down on America and I personally feel a bit nervous about it all, but it's not like Canada's 
not got its cracks and fissures as well. We've just had a trucker's blockade and all sorts of hoo-ha coming up here as well. Do you become disheartened by the by what you see in America? I mean, it's kind of coming back to the heart again, but it's like, I don't want to ask, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I guess it's like, how do you stay on the path when some of the, the stories you read and hear feel dispiriting? I am so afraid. I am so afraid of the power of human beings mm. and our inability to use it for good. Yeah. You know, and um, I'm afraid for my kids. I'm afraid for the impact that technology is going to have on their ability to do what you and I are doing right now. Right. Um, and I am comforted by the fact that this is the fear that I've known throughout my life that inspires me to ask deeper questions, to love harder, mm -hmm. to follow my heart in a more true way. Mm -hmm. And while I know that my tiny little immaterial platform won't change everything at once, Perhaps it'll show my kids the way. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it'll show a few others the way. And uh, and I'm, I, I let that fear and that sadness propel me forward and, and, and make sure that I'm not sitting on the sidelines reading about somebody else doing the heavy lifting. Right. That I actually feel like I'm a, a part of the lift myself. Thanks for the conversation, Tebow. I've, I've loved talking to you. Um, as a final question... What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation? Look, I, uh, to a certain extent, I feel so complete, <laughs> you know, I, uh, yeah. I will, I will tell a story mm, um, if I, if I have time, okay. uh, that really changed my life. And, and you hinted at it when you asked me how I transitioned from peace players to the next thing that, that I'm doing. And so, I was on the flight back to South Africa when I knew that I wasn't going back to the program, flying back to Baltimore. And I kind of settled into my window seat on this monster jumbo 747 plane. And I was broken. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know what was going to be next. I was leaving the thing I loved the most in the world. I hadn't found the woman of the desert, even though like I looked around every corner, I didn't know what I was going back to. And I was drained. So I just, I, I passed out before the plane even took off. And I, I don't know, a few hours in, the, there was some turbulence. I ended up waking up and look, I mean, I think you've gotten a sense of me. I love to talk to people. I love to right, meet people. Right. So you sit down on a 16 hour flight next to me, you better be prepared <laughs> to go. And there's this 12 year old kid sitting down next to me and he's reading this big fat book, right? Bigger book than I've ever read. <laughs> and so he sees me kind of come to, and I introduce myself as Tebow and he, closes the book as if he's ready to talk and, and introduces himself as Simon. We start this awesome conversation about what he's doing in South Africa. And one of my favorite questions to ask people is if I had a time capsule, like a time machine, and I could use it to send those people back to any time period in the world, what time period would they use, like to go back to? And I've heard the coolest answers. People mm -hmm. want to go back to the medieval ages. People want to go back to being cavemen. They want to go back to the 60s. And so I find my window to sneak the question in with Simon and Michael, as if he knew I was going to ask him that question, 
he says, I would use your time capsule to go back to the time period of Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And I kind of froze, right? I had that sweating sensation when fear enters my body. And I asked him to repeat himself. I was positive I misunderstood. And he says, yeah, if I could have used your time machine, I would have got, used it to go back to the time period of Nazi Germany because I would have had a chance to stop Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. And it was this amazing moment because I've asked myself my whole life, you, you talked about like white savior, right? I've asked myself my whole life, had I been born during the time of slavery in America in a white family in the deep South, yeah. would I have had the mental strength and fortitude Right, the moral to, courage. Yeah. The moral courage to stand up for what was right, even mm -hmm. though none, nobody else in my family did. Right? Even to have noticed that to what have, was wrong. Yeah. To have noticed, yep. Yeah. Same question. I'd spent so much time living post-apartheid South yeah. Africa. If I'd grown up as a white boy during apartheid, would I have had that mental fortitude, that compassion, that be, ability to see the other side? Yeah. And I'd always like shrug that question off because my dad always said there's no such thing as a what if question um, because it's not possible and there's no ever going to be a time machine. So why am I bothering yeah. myself? with these like silly questions. And in that moment, Simon changed my life forever because he yeah. made me realize that, you know, 50 years from today, yeah, there's going to be two people on a plane and one person is going to turn to the other one and ask that same stupid question <laughs> and the time capsule question. And that person is going to turn around and say, I go back to 2022 yeah, because I could have had a chance to stop the global warming, the yeah. injustice in school system, been a part of the black lives matter movement. Mm. Whatever the struggle or the opportunity, um, I could have done it. And so it made me realize the importance of the immediacy of our life, that yeah. we have one shot at this. And again, are we going to sit around and hope that somebody else does the work or are we going to do it ourselves? Yeah. And I vowed in that moment to never let a day go by where I wasn't a part of the solution, where I wasn't like scaring myself enough to feel like I was making some sort of a difference, even if it was in a tiny way. And it was, a, it was an incredible moment, and then it was an incredible life lesson. I don't know, know where Simon is today. I don't know how old he, he, he might be, but uh, that, that, that little 12-year-old boy and the simplicity and the courage of his statement to go against the trend was such a beautiful life-learning moment for me. Surrender to your heart. Surrender to your heart. <laughs> That's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, I, I struggle with that. I'm not even sure what that means sometimes. But I suspect that to surrender to your heart, you have to know how to listen to it and to really listen to it. I mean, I, I'm, I can easily convince myself that my heart's saying, eat another slice of cake, but I know that's not the real message here. So how do you hear the deeper call? How do you understand what the call to surrender might be? Well, perhaps you can only really see and hear what your heart is pointing to when you walk out into community. And I'm thinking Thibaut standing in the intersection in West Baltimore or Thibaut chatting to Simon on that flight home. And in those conversations, that's when you start to hear what your heart might be saying to you. Because perhaps your heart never speaks to you directly but it communicates in the echoes and the whispers that bounce back from the world. I thought this was an inspiring conversation, you know, a, a call to action and a person who has found purpose and is finding ways to live his purpose in the world. 
if, if you like conversations like this, there's two that might uh, tickle your fancy in, in the back catalogue now that we have over 100 interviews there. Um, Peter Bregman, uh, a good friend of mine, a writer, a thinker, and we talked about and around the topic of his book, which is on empathy, his most recent book. Um, so that topic, that interview is called A Guide to Empathy. And Sarah Hendren, How to See the World in You is the name of the episode. Sarah is a designer and she designs for people who, um, I'm not sure what the right language is now, um, but who have a disability of some sort, who might call themselves disabled. And how do you design to meet everyone's needs, not just able-bodied people in that full sense of the word that, for instance, I might embody. So another great conversation, very thoughtful, very brilliant woman, I thought. Um, if you want more of Thibaut, well then, uh, he has a website, he has a book out as well. Um, Thibaut Mannequin is his website, I'll spell it because it's a slightly complicated name. His name is T-H-I-B-A-U-L-T, M-A-N-E-K-I-N, ThibautMannequin.com. Brilliant, thank you for listening, thank you for passing the, the episode along to that one person who needs to hear this episode. Thanks for giving it some love on the internets and the reviews, wherever you're doing it. And I'll remind you that you are awesome and you're doing great.